looking to create wealth in commercial property but don't know how to do it, tired of negative gearing and not getting ahead, well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Welcome to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. My name is Andrew Bean, and I'm here with the founder of Revolve Commercial, my trusty co-host, Mish Daniel. How are you doing? Hey, Andrew. Great day. Of course it is. Of course it is. So, Mish, who do we have today? So, we've got Scott from Hoffman Kelly with us today, Scott Ward, a very trusted accountant specializing in development and commercial real estate. Very, very knowledgeable in that area. Awesome. And what should the listeners listen out for in this episode, Mish? Well, I think the most important part to listen out for the differences between settlers, appointers, beneficiaries, the trustee and secretaries. I think a lot of people get confused with their trusts and not only them, but their accountants, their legal entities that set them up. Sometimes we see trusts that have come through that are just not set up correctly. And I would say a huge amount of value in this podcast is where Scott takes you through a step-by-step explanation of all those different headings in your trust. Very, very valuable. Yeah, it was quite thorough, wasn't he? I mean, we we touched on how trusts work, the difference between a business trust account and an actual personal trust, how the tax law has actually changed in regards to distributions, which is really important. We talked about electronic trusts, if it's actually possible, what states actually do them. We also talked about potentially using or creating trusts using smart contracts and then verifying them on the blockchain if that was ever you know, a possibility of coming into fruition. And we also spoke about the different structures that we can use if you don't feel comfortable using a trust. So action-packed, a lot of information there. It was a really, really good podcast. I'm really happy with it. Can't find any good deals? Revolve Commercial has you covered with the hottest commercial property picks every month delivered free straight to your inbox. Subscribe today at www.revolvecommercial.com.au. Sit back, save time and have the deals delivered directly to you from Revolve Commercial. Let's bring in Scott. Hey Scott, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good Andrew. How are you? Good, mate. Welcome to the show. So we actually have you here today to help us understand the do's and don'ts when managing a trust account and also a business trust account. Could you just share exactly what a trust account is and how it differs from a business trust account? Yeah, sure. So a business trust account is usually something that's done by a real estate agent, a property manager that type of business where they're taking on funds from purchasers and vendors and it's not their money and they need to make sure that it's getting allocated correctly. So that's more that business trust account. The way you've got a family or a discretionary trust that most people know, where that entity actually owns a bank account, that's a completely separate issue. That's just like you and I owning a bank account. A trust bank account is just a bank account that belongs to that trust. So they're very sort of separate. A trust account in the business is, as the name suggests, it's a very trusted bank account where funds really need to be heavily, very cautiously monitored going in and out. And correct me if I'm wrong, a business trust account needs to be audited. So as you said, it is exactly what it is. It's a trust account. 
And under normal circumstances, a business trust account would be audited either biannually or at least every 12 months. Yeah, so most trust accounts will get audited annually. Within that year, there's usually two random inspections that happen with that business during the year. The people who will be doing the audit, which is generally an accountant, they would be requesting bank reconciliations and checking a month's worth of of transactions and just making sure that everything is being done correctly, everything's being signed off, there's procedures in place, people know what they're doing. And then there's the final sort of annual trust account audit, which is far more detailed. It doesn't look at every single transaction, but it does do a random inspection of, of quite a lot of those transactions. And any discrepancies, whether it's the amounts, it can be a whole bunch of different things as well. It it can be around the paperwork. Every single transaction needs to have signed off an invoice, you know, the bank accounts, a whole range of details around it. They are quite laborsome, I guess, in doing it. There's usually specific software that's involved. The people who are looking after this and signing off on transactions they, that's often why they will need a specific license, which is usually done through state governments. So that's where like a real estate license or something along those lines is required because they'll be told exactly what those requirements are. Not only that, if there's sometimes the licensee of that trust account is not necessarily the director of the company that owns that trust account that director is also responsible. So the governments are really there to make sure that you can imagine with the sale of a property, deposits going in of anywhere from $5,000 up to 50000 maybe even you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, that there's no fraudulent activity going on. People who are looking after all that money, well-trained and yeah, responsible people. Okay, so <laughs> just to uh, set the record straight so that people don't get uh, scared off before they even start, because a lot of people who don't know about business entities and trusts might be hearing this and kind of go, ah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the biggest difference is that what we're talking about over here is a business trust is if you are a licensed real estate agent or manager as by their agents. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. For, the, for the average mum and dad who own a commercial property, residential property, this doesn't affect them whatsoever. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but Scott, so, I mean, we just want to try and justify it a bit more. So, what if you're the average investor? And I could make the justification or the argument that you could have your own investment business. Does it become a business account when you're taking outside money into your personal, like, trust account that you're setting up and doing uh, business in for your actual investments? Yep. So there's a big distinction there. So mixing up business and investment as far as, I guess, tax and accounting goes is it's always going to be one of two of those things. It's never going to be the same. So you might think that it's a business, but you're effectively just in the strategy of investing in properties. You can have a portfolio of one property through to a thousand properties, it's still not a business. The underlying feature is that you're buying property for long-term rent and that's an investment. So it actually has no features of business whatsoever when it comes to sort of investments that are just happen to be owned in a in a trust vehicle or entity, then there's very different rules that are involved. It's the bank account is just like your own personal bank account. You can shift money in and out within reason. (laughs) 
Okay, so for something like that, you're not necessarily taking people's deposits, let's say, or their bonds and holding their bonds for a, for a period of time that needs to be audited. The type of trust that you're talking about is purely your own personal trust, which would be a family trust or a discretionary trust or something like that, right? That's exactly right, because generally as an investor, if your property is owned in a trust, you usually have a property agent that's looking after the property anyhow. And so they're the ones who would need the trust account because they're receiving deposits from your tenants of your property on your behalf. So that's where they're imposing themselves in between you and your tenants. And it's their responsibility to make sure that it, those funds are allocated correctly. But as far as your trust goes, you're just receiving money from the agent or possibly from the lessee directly. None of those trust account requirements and auditing and all that type of thing that I spoke about before relate to anything to do with that. Okay. And a lot of people have asked me how many properties they can own in a trust or how many properties they can own in an entity or how many trusts they can have in an entity underneath. So one entity, how many properties in the trusts? Yeah, look, there's no restrictions on how many properties can be within one trust or how many trusts you can own. So in fact, some of our clients even have one property that's actually owned by two trusts that are in partnership together. So, and, and effectively what that means is that one trust owns 50% of a property and, and the second trust owns the other 50%. There's a whole way of structuring, I guess, around that. But as a general rule of thumb, our strategy is usually to have one property in one trust. And if you're going to then buy a second property, our recommendation from an asset protection point of view is to have the second property in a second trust. And the reasoning behind that is each trust is its own separate entity. Anytime there is property, there's always a little bit of risk, whether there's some subsidence issues that aren't getting fixed on time. If that tenant there decides to sue the property owner and that property owner is, say, Trust A, it's the assets that are within Trust A as well as potentially the trustee as well, but I'll touch on that later. It's really whatever assets are within Trust A are up for grabs. If it's just that one property, then that's at risk. That's just part and parcel of owning property. If you've got a second property within that same trust, that's an asset of Trust A as well. So if something happens with one property, then both properties are effectively up for grabs, which is obviously not a great way of managing your asset protection. Whereas if your second property was in Trust B, provided there's no cross guarantees between Trust A, Trust B, no loans between Trust A, Trust B, in essence, they are completely separate. And if something goes wrong with property A, then property B is protected. Okay. Yeah, that totally kind of makes, I think a lot of people get confused with that and always ask the question. And I think as new investors, a lot of people look at that and say, oh, but you know, the expense. However, I always look at that in terms of expense and say, I think, hell, it's worth it. It, it actually simplifies it when you have a multitude of trusts. Yeah, it is that weighing up of that initial costs and ongoing costs against the benefit. And some people, you know, they understand property and they decide that 
the risk is worth it. They don't want to incur all those additional ad administration costs for accounting, additional ASIC fees if there's lots of corporate trustees involved. And it's everyone's choice, but all we can do is just advise as to why we would recommend, I guess, having a, a separate trust for each one. And in the end, it's up to people how what their sort of risk factor is, I guess. So, Scott, before we get too deep into the podcast, I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit of a history on how trusts came into existence and how long, you know, why they actually were created. Yeah, look, I, to be honest, I don't really know the answer. I did a bit of a Google. Obviously, Australia yeah. came from the from England and all the laws and everything sort of all followed through. So, my I think my basic understanding would be that Australia's always had them ever since it became a nation and, you know, utilised English law. So I, I guess around is it's really to allow people to put, I guess, assets and investments aside for the benefit of others or, or themselves. It's almost like a will, but it's while you're still alive, I guess, is probably one way of, of looking at it. They do have a lot of good features. So I guess one of the examples is similar to, it's actually like a deceased estate in many ways. All those assets form part of the estate and then executors get appointed and they work, manage through all the assets that are in that estate. And then they, you know, usually it's sort of a liquidation process or whatever, but effectively at some point they deal with all those assets that are in that estate and they then get distributed to the intended beneficiaries. And a trust is really very similar to that. It's really just a way of being able to have investments that are in a that are protected from potentially an individual who might be at high risk. So a good example are medical specialists who are often sued, I guess. We don't really want assets in their own name. So a trust is a good way of letting them invest in assets where I guess a bit of a sleep factor at night that that's going to be protected. I don't know whether there was any real reason why trusts were created. I think it's just one of those things that just came about over time and <laughs> and it's just evolved and different trusts have been created over the years. So, yeah. Scott, what and, is the story around the $10 that you receive when you open a trust? <laughs> yeah. <love> that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's always a funny one. <laughs> In the eyes of the law, a trust is not a legal entity, and that's why a trustee has to be appointed, and that trustee has to be an individual or a company. On top of that, because there's no tangible asset that's associated to a trust, that's where the $10 comes into it. This $10 is now the trust $10, so whether that's held effectively in a safe it's still the trust $10 or often what a lot of trustees providers say is open up a bank account and put your $10 in there. That trust now owns an asset and that means that the trust is now effectively settled. So just the fact that there's $10 provided with the trustee basically means that the trust now exists and it's it's been, you know, it's no longer just a, a thought bubble. It's really, it, it owns an asset and it's now, yeah, what they what they term settled. Very, very interesting. So, like, you you alluded to it before. Do you think the name, the trust, a trust, is actually because the entity is trustworthy because it's so looked after and uh, the rules are so uh, sharp? In the end, it's the trustee that takes on all that responsibility and it's their 
fiduciary duty to make sure that everything is done correctly because it's probably better to say that it's actually held on trust. That's a better description of what a trust is because the assets are not the trustees, therefore the benefit of the beneficiaries. So there's it's probably worthwhile, I guess, going through a little bit of the trust structure and, and some of the important roles. And there would be four. So one is the settler, and that's the person who pretty much says that they gave you the $10 for the trust deed. That settler has to be someone who will definitely not receive any benefits of the trust at all. Once they've settled the trust, their role in in the trustee's life is, for most of the time, is generally over and done with. They don't really have anything else to do with that trust. There's a few weird circumstances or exceptional circumstances where they may be required to come to step back in at some point. But generally, once that trust is settled, the settler part of it is, is done and dusted. And if you're doing setups for accountants, it's usually the director of the accounting firm that's doing that. The next role is what's called the appointer. And the appointor is, in essence, it's it's really considered the person who really controls that trust. Similar to a shareholder role in the company, a appointor can add and remove beneficiaries. They can add and remove trustees. They can change terms of the trust deed, all that sort of thing. So they are sort of termed, I guess, the real controllers of the trust. Often there's what's called primary beneficiaries there the people who are mostly to benefit from the income that's being derived or the capital that's being derived in that trust. So within trust law, the people who are specified as those beneficiaries, there's a bit of a, very roughly, it's sort of a two up and two down system. So if I was listed as a beneficiary, it's my parents and my grandparents are eligible beneficiaries, but also my my kids and my grandkids are also eligible beneficiaries. My brothers and sisters, all the siblings, any cousins, aunt and uncles, aunt and uncles are excluded, but that's sort of, I guess, the primary beneficiary part. The family members, if I'm listed as the sole primary beneficiary, the secondary beneficiaries are usually all those family members that I just talked about. And then often there's tertiary beneficiaries in there as well. And that alludes to usually related party trusts, companies, charities, anyone else basically throughout the world that you want to distribute to. And yeah, so the way that beneficiaries are, are designed or worded, I guess, in trust deeds is usually quite wide. And that's why they're often called discretionary trusts, because there's a lot of discretion as to where that income can go. The other role is the trustee role. Now, often that's a individual or a company, well, has to be an individual or a company. The trustee does take on a lot of responsibility and liabilities of the trust can fall to the trustee as well. So if there's a business within that trust or that trust has bought a property where there may be some risk involved, we will often put a company in there as trustee because if the liabilities of the trust go to the trustee and it's a hundred dollar company and that company doesn't have anything else that it's doing that's all that's up for grabs whereas if it's a individual that's a trustee then their home anything else any other assets they may own personally are potentially at risk so that's where yeah there's a bit of decision around the trustee and the trustee needs to act appropriately as well. So there are instances if the trustee 
uses the trust and its funds for personal uses and not for the not for the beneficiaries. There are times where the beneficiaries can actually sue the trustee as well. So the trustee role is, yeah, an extremely important role as well. And what about okay. the secretary? There's no secretary role in a trust, but in a when you've got a company that's acting as trustee, there is a secretary there as well. The company secretary, in essence, is really just responsible for making sure that company details are updated with, with ASIC. That's kind of the only real role. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's a great rundown, Scott. Thank you very much for, because I think there's quite a lot of grey around those different, I'm going to call them hats, that uh, different people have to wear, essentially, when setting up those entities and trusts. Yeah, and it's always very scary the first time. I can completely understand that. But as as the sort of second or third one kick in, I think most people start to get more comfortable and understand it a little bit more. And yeah, and I always try and encourage my clients to make sure that they do ask why they're doing certain things all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of them don't understand, especially the set law between the set law and the appointer. There's quite a lot of missing communication or misunderstanding around that. But now just going back to business trusts. So business trust works slightly differently to the setup that you've just explained here. Is that right? Yeah. So the family trust, discretionary trust that I was just talking about, if they have a bank account, as I said, it's just it's just like a, any other sort of bank account that an individual or a company owns. Um, there's no auditing requirements or anything like that. The business trust account is for certain professions, I guess, is probably a better way of trying to think about it. And it's more going to be where, yeah, where you've got a company that has a, I'll just use the property management business as an example, where a company might be running a property management business. They can have their own bank accounts there that they're just doing their normal transactions on. So paying bazers, paying creditors, receiving their commissions, that type of thing. But they will also have a trust account and it's a specific type of account that's usually registered with the state government at that time. In Queensland, it's the Office of Fair Trading. All the states have their own different terminology for that particular department. But effectively, it's a very special, I guess, type of bank account and has, yeah, there's only certain people who are licensed to to start and to operate a trust account and then there's that ongoing I guess compliance around making sure that they're doing the right thing. What is some of the legislation around operating those type of trust accounts? Why is it so strict? It's so strict because people have money in there that's it's basically money that has nothing to do with that particular business. They're holding it on trust for other people, so third parties that are obviously people who are customers, but it's just not their money at all. And again, going back to that property management example, the rent's being paid to the real estate agent. It's going to go into their trust account because it's not their money. They haven't earned that as a property owner. That's their money. So they're just holding it on trust. They may have the right to deduct their management fee out of there and they'll have their requirements of how they do that out of the trust account. But effectively, then they need to make sure that the remaining balance goes out to the property owner. So if there's mismanagement on that kind of a trust, what are some of the penalties they would cop mismanaging their trust account? Yeah, the penalties are extremely severe, I guess you'd call them, um, or very, very high because 
they don't want any breaches whatsoever. So it may not even be just that they didn't pay the right amount. It can be, down, as I said, if they don't have documents to support every single transaction, that can also be a breach where the money was, wasn't paid out on time within a reasonable period of time. Some of the records aren't accounted for properly. It could be a whole bunch of different things, but some of the penalties are usually just quite heavy fines. And look, I'm talking from a Queensland perspective here, so I'm sure the other states are probably very similar, but the penalties are usually very severe, even for very minor breaches. And I do believe it, it can go up to jail time for people who do, you know, like it's probably going into that more fraud type of area. Yeah, I think we've seen some interesting cases of late where people have just gone off and booked holidays and bought themselves cars and houses and <laughs> all sorts of things out of trust account funds. And obviously that hasn't ended too well for them. And that's why auditors are regulated as well, because if they're not doing the right thing and finding these breaches and making sure that they're rectified with the client, then they're not doing their duty either. So yeah, there's a lot of responsibility on, yeah, when it does come to these, I guess, what we'll call business trust accounts, it's not their money at all. And if they're using it for personal use, then that's a massive breach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a really good thing that it's so strict. It just makes you feel a lot better when you're actually transferring those kind of dollars for a property or for whatnot. So I think it's a really good thing. Yeah, and I think for, you know, investors out there who are receiving all those rents or or people who are, you know, selling their property, knowing that there's a heavy focus and quite large penalties for people who are not doing the right thing and giving you your rent or your sale proceeds, yeah, just being aware that that is the case. And if people are having troubles in getting their money out, then that could well be a sign of some trouble and, and there are avenues of, I like, escalating it. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. Are you struggling to put together a wealth plan? Revolve Commercial have designed an eight question process that generates a personalized 12 month wealth growth plan. And it's free. I gotta check this out myself. Go to www.revolvecommercial.com.au to get your personalized wealth growth plan free today. So mate, can you explain the ATO's view on section 100A um, in regards to discretionary trust distributions and explain to us if that's business trust or just a personal trust? So the business trust, as I sort of mentioned, it's really just a bank account that's for a specific purpose within a business. So the section 100A really deals with trusts and, and trust distributions. So that's where we talked about before where we've got a, a discretionary or often it's called a family trust as well. As I sort of mentioned, you can distribute income to eligible beneficiaries of that trust. Section 100A has been around since 1979, I think it was, and it was introduced as an anti-avoidance measure for, I guess, what you'd call really egregious behaviour like fraud and evasion. And besides that, I guess common practice within the industry, it's been known about. However, what the ATO has come out with in February, March is this, I guess, a few things around this section 100A, and it's about what's called reimbursement agreements. And the ATO's view on this, I guess, would be why they've come out now and done it. 
but you're going to have to ask them. No one in the industry can really understand why it's all of a sudden become an issue, whether they're just trying to claim back a whole bunch of COVID incentives and yeah, try and get people to pay more tax. That's probably the only thing that I can think of. However, what was published by the ATO, there's actually three things. So one was a taxpayer alert. There's also a draft tax ruling, and there's also some draft practical guidance around it. So they all touch on slightly different things. However, what it's most commonly about is where trusts are distributing income to adult beneficiaries. However, those adult beneficiaries, which are usually the um, children who are over 18, who have now you know become adults and adult tax rates, or possibly parents or grandparents who are self-funded retirees who have no income in their names and income is being distributed to these low tax individuals. However, the cash benefit of it all is staying with someone else, which is usually, to keep it very simple, sort of at that mum and dad level where they're the true beneficiaries of those funds that the trust has earned. So what... The ATO's view is that the Section 100A anti-avoidance measure should be applied to these distributions. Now, from a trust law perspective, doing those distributions to all these family members, there's no issue at all. You, legally, there's from the yeah from the legal point of view, there's no issue. From a tax point of view, the ATO see that as if you're doing these distributions and your sole purpose is to minimise tax, there's a tax benefit in there. That's what they're trying to capture now. As I said, it's been a very common practice for most accountants for the last 40, 50 years. So it's been a massive shift in, I guess, thinking. All the industry bodies have put in statements, I guess, around the ATO commissioner's view on this. And while that's fine. At the moment, as tax agents, we're, we're usually obliged, well, we are obliged to follow what guidance is provided by the ATO. And at the moment, we need to, yeah, at least advise clients that this is what happens. And if there's no good reason why, if we're doing a distribution to an adult child, for instance, if that money is not going to go to that child, then we need to make them aware that they're going to be a, what's termed a red flag, all at risk. Oh, wow. So in other words, so in other words um, mum and pop are distributing those funds to their son and daughter, let's say. And when it goes into their son and their daughter's accounts, what mum and pop are saying, hey, Johnny and, and Jane, that money's not yours. It's going into your account so that we can we get the tax benefit, but you need to give that money back to us. That's effectively what it is, right? Yeah, actually, I just realised I probably didn't explain that very well. So with the trust income, so often... Well, let's just think of a, of a good scenario. There, let's just say there was a term deposit in a trust and $100,000 of interest income for the year. That trust, generally, we, we always want to distribute the income that is earned in that trust out to beneficiaries. If it stays in the trust, it gets taxed at the highest marginal tax rate, which is 47 cents in the dollar. So even if we distribute it out to an individual who's on the highest tax rate, it's still the same effect. So we always, I guess, distribute that income out of the trust. So the trust is not ever paying any tax. That's probably the first thing. The next part is what often happens is we say, yeah, we've got our 18-year-old son. He has no taxable income in his name. We're going to distribute on 
the trust tax return and in the trust financial statements, we're going to distribute $20,000 to him and that he's not going to pay any tax on that $20,000 income. However, we're going to take all that $100,000 and he's not going to see any of that. Mum and dad just go, that $100,000 is ours. You're not seeing a cent of that. That's where the ATO have an issue where there's obviously been a tax benefit gained. Well, the only reason that the distribution was done is really just for tax reasons. If the parents go, well, here is 20 grand, then that's fine. There's no issues with that. Okay, so if it's above board, basically it's 100% fine. But if it's being used just for their tax benefits, then uh, they're going to get a slap over the wrist, right? Yeah, that's right. And the next question that everyone always asks is, but I pay for all their school fees, I pay for all their (laughs) living expenses, you know, all that type of thing. Unfortunately, that doesn't, yeah, really. They owe me. They owe me that money. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. All this this money I've spent on them. Yep. Yeah. They've got to pay back. (laughs) Pay back time. That's right. So unfortunately, that doesn't get captured. However, there are still items that you can do such as often hex fees is is one that is quite often floated. So I have a client this year, actually, he's paid his daughter's $16,000 worth of hex fees. He's paid it off and he will be doing a $16,000 trust distribution to her this year. That's fine. Even if that hex fee was next year, you can't do anything historically So, or account for items that were paid historically. So let's just say last year, those $16,000 of hex fees were paid. This year, she gets a $16,000 trust distribution. That $16,000 that was paid last year won't count. However, if that $16,000 was paid this year or any year in the future, then that will be okay. Okay. So it's quite tricky. It's a fine line. It is, yeah. So if I go and I buy my daughter a car, let's say for 20 grand's, and that distribution goes to her, it would kind of work exactly the same as the hex? Yep, that would be fine. And the other so one that's a lot... her name. Yeah, exactly. It's It's got to be hers. And the other thing, and it's sort of in the name, is, is Section 100A is about reimbursement agreements. You've also got to make sure that there's... You don't just give the money or buy a car for her and then she pays you that $20,000 back. You've got to make sure that there's nothing that's coming back either. You can't be just a... Yeah, send twenty thousand to a bank account, but then she just basically gives it to you at some other point later on. Either, yeah, that benefit really has to be used by her. We won't tell her that just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> so, is this change only with your eighteen-year-old kids? What about your spouse? Yes, spouses get covered within all this, so it's one where they effectively see you as the same person, I guess. So when it comes to spouses, the ATO don't have an issue with it. It's only effectively different generations. That's good because that's exactly why we created a discretionary trust originally for my family. So that's why we did it. Yeah. And when you think about it, like it is both the mum and dad are usually, even if it's probably very historical, I guess, but, you know, the father was usually the one who was generating all that income, perhaps in that trust, it was running a business. But in essence, both the parents, are, they're the ones who are using or getting the benefit of that money because within that spousal agreement or within that, however that spouse works for in legal terms, everything is being used for the benefit of both of them anyhow. So how that's distributed doesn't really sort of matter too much. Yeah, awesome. So how do you know if you set up a trust correctly? 
Or how do you know if you haven't set it up correctly? Because trusts aren't real legal entities, the one thing is that, yeah, you do need, I guess, at least one asset. So that $10 is really, I guess, that creation of the trust. Generally, from my point of view, if you don't have a trust deed, I'd be really skeptical as to whether you could say that you have a trust. A trust deed is very similar to a company constitution in many ways. It's a set of rules that the trustee has to abide by. And so if that's not there, it would be hard to, even if you did say that you had a trust, it would be very difficult to prove it. And I think it's definitely out of my realms now in the legal side of things, but I think it would be difficult if you were sitting in front of a judge trying to say that you had a trust, but there's no paperwork, there's no bank accounts, there's no nothing around it. It's a difficult concept to try and um, confirm. So a trust deed would almost be like a will for that particular entity. So it tells you what all the do's and the don'ts are in that trust. Is that right? Yep, that's exactly it. And if the trustee, if you want to do something in that trust and it's it doesn't actually mention anything about it, then mm. you can't do it. So you can go back and amend deeds. And that's, I guess, somewhat common. So... There was a a lot of trustees got changed back in 2009 when there was um, a tax ruling that came out called the Bamford case, where there was issues around the definition of income in a lot of trustees. So trustees can get amended, but yeah, in general, it's just a set of rules. And if those rules aren't applied correctly by the trustee, then that's an issue. (laughs) Yes. Okay. And Scott, what are the best ways to manage multiple trust accounts? So multiple trusts so that have accounts yeah. or we're not talking about business trust accounts anymore? Not necessarily uh, business trust accounts. Uh, we talk about entities with trusts. So, so now you've got, let's just say you've got 10 properties and you've got 10 trusts. Best way to structure that entire structure. Each trust can be, I guess, managed on its own and administered on its own. So generally, I guess, you know, within our client base, we have clients that have a ridiculous number of trust setups, shall I say. I think my largest client actually has about 120 or 130 trusts. So you want someone who understands what the trusts are, who the trustees are, any changes that are happening, make sure there's no implications across any other trusts, that type of thing. When you do have a lot of trusts, it can be difficult to manage unless you're sort of I guess, can spend the time in making sure that, yeah, you understand exactly what's happening in each one. But generally, I think from our client base, most people will just let us, I guess, manage the compliance and the tax side of the trust. They're just making sure that if they've got investment properties in there, they're just making sure that they're getting all the money, they're keeping track records of all the payments and money coming in, all that type of thing. They're just looking after that operation side of things, but then we can definitely help with a lot of the compliance, the structuring, you know, if they're selling properties, making sure we can talk about all the trust distributions at year end and all that type of thing. If you've got a multitude of trusts, you could have the secretary of those trusts could be that person who's looking after them and or you could have an outside person like a, a bookkeeper, for instance. Yeah, it probably depends on each client. So, Again, there's no secretaries in trust, it'll be the trustee. But yep. the particularly with commercial property, there are GS well often if there's over seventy five thousand dollars of leasing coming in, they need to be registered for GST and do 
BAS returns. If it's under $75,000, they can choose to be registered for GST and will still be required to do a BAS. Generally, when that's the case, there's some great accounting software out there. I think most people would have heard of programs like Xero or Myob or, or Reckon, that type of thing. I think most people are now going towards Xero. Most people find that quite user-friendly and it's not just for businesses. They can actually be very useful for commercial properties. This software can get bank feeds. So there's a transaction yesterday in your bank account. It'll flow through into your accounting software the next day. And you can say that was rental income or that was a land tax expense. You can do all the, the GST coding or an expense coding. Now, people who understand GST and some of those transactions may feel comfortable in doing that themselves. And yeah, definitely no problems with that. However, a lot of people may be, they don't understand a lot of that and they want someone just to do effectively, yeah, that basic sort of bookkeeping function. So yeah, a bookkeeper can be very useful. They're generally a lot cheaper than an accountant. So they'll often be sort of probably close to half the price of an accountant, but they'll do exactly that. They can definitely do that job properly. They can make sure that yeah, those transactions are coded correctly, GST is treated properly. They can then also prepare the BAS for you. They can lodge the BAS for you. You pretty much just need to, as a client, you would just authorize the BAS that it's all good and make the payment and that's all you need to worry about. So having that bookkeeping role can be quite beneficial and make your life very easy. And from an accountant's perspective, having a yeah, a bookkeeper who knows what they're doing behind there and doing all that makes our life easier and helps keep our fees down for our clients. So I'm just thinking about your your client there that has over 120 trusts and the, the physical aspect of having 120 trusts. What if you just have, do they just have binder and binder and binder of trust deeds stored away somewhere in their cabinets? I think we have the binders and binders and binders of <laughs> trustees in our in our uh, compactus. So this particular client is in property development. So they are using them for sites that they're developing. So they'll be around for a few years and then they'll disappear. So they're not continually having those same trusts all the time. But obviously, as they buy sites, they might require more trusts to purchase the entity. That might be the right structure for them. So it's one of those things where they're obviously in or well, they are quite a large client they have their own cfo and finance manager so within that whole business they will have their own electronic records they may wish to keep their own paper records but they just choose not to we make sure that we always have a, a paper copy available if required so are there any uh, technologic advances in the works coming through that potentially could have us doing this solely online instead of using the old paper and pen method to create and, and store trusts it's an interesting question. I believe in New South Wales, you can do that. I think they changed the law back in 2018 so that that can be done. My understanding is that a lot of other states won't, or even in New South Wales, a lot of people are still doing it paper-based because until the rest of Australia does do it electronically, there's always the potential that if something goes wrong in that trust, there can always be a query about where the trust was actually established. So what, in that example, I, I'd probably say, let's just say it was a New South Wales electronic trust. However, at the time that they signed the document electronically, they might have been in Victoria. There 
is always a question around, well, where was it actually established it? Was it in Victoria? In which case, it's no longer a valid trust. I think it's a matter of time before we do go electronic. And from my perspective, I can't wait for that day. But <laughs> from my understanding is that, yeah, it's probably going to be uh, quite a while away yet. We know how quickly government works. So it could well be another 10, 20 years before we sort of see the whole of Australia do it. And then I think the lawyers are going to be more comfortable in using that method. Trusts are actually registered per state and lawyers are the ones who are creating their own trust deeds. So there's quite a lot of specifics around it. It's not just an Australian-wide trust. It's the trust will be effectively established in a state. So do you think trust will ever become like a smart contract that gets verified using blockchain technology? I'm not really up with blockchain and, and Bitcoin and all that sort of thing. But from what I do understand, blockchain is very rigid, I guess is probably one way. Like there's, it's all zeros and ones. It's, it's all sort of fixed. Discretionary trust by their nature, very flexible. So I think trying to just marriage those two concepts together just from the outset is, is probably going to be very difficult. I think there'd be a lot of questions around residency of trust. So, you know, is that blockchain actually within a different country? As I said, I don't know how blockchain works, but I think there'd be a lot of questions, particularly around the tax point of view, around residency, tax implications, all that type of thing. Even when it comes to family law and disputes, like is it really a, an Australian asset? Is it not an Australian asset? Is it really tangible? How can we split this up? I think it's probably something that's going to be even further away than digital signing of trust deeds. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, sounds like <laughs> Scott, are there, are there any alternative structures to avoid putting trusts together? Is there anything else that one could use instead of trusts? A few other structures that we do use. The main ones are obviously in your own name. You can mm -hmm. put it in your own name. When we're talking about property and, and I guess that risk, a lot of people will buy investment properties in their own name and they want that negative gearing benefit for tax purposes, which is great. And that can be really powerful. From an asset protection point of view, as I sort of said, it's not a great structure in when it comes to that. Partnerships is another one. So whether that's partnerships of individuals or as I sort of touched on earlier in the in the um, conversation, can be partnerships of trusts, it can be partnerships of companies. Mm -hmm. There's a whole range of different options there. So that can be good if, you know, you've got two unrelated people coming together or probably not unrelated people when it comes to partnerships because they're jointly and severally liable. It's probably going to be family members. There's super funds, obviously. So particularly with property, self-managed super funds, that's pretty much why that whole SMSF industry took off is because people want to have property ownership. They can't do that through industry funds. And companies are obviously the other main structure that's out there. Now, I guess sort of just going through some of the pros and cons at a high level for that with in relation to properties. Companies are good from a tax point of view, I guess, because that, uh, from an income tax point of view where you're getting income, you're just going to be paying a flat rate of tax of 30% because it's an investment. It's not, there are two company tax rates at the moment, 25% for businesses and 30% for investment. So you'll be taxed at 30%. You've got two high income earners who are both over $180,000 and every they're on the 47 cents in the tax rate, then you know that type of thing can be very attractive. The negative is that companies don't get access to the 50% 
general CGT disc or capital gains tax discount for holding an asset more than 12 months that most people like to use, and it definitely is a good benefit. So if they eventually sell that property and make a million dollar capital gain, they'll be paying $300,000 worth of tax. The other issue is they've then got retained earnings in that company, and they've not only do they have to pay the tax in the company, they've then got to get that $700,000 of retained earnings left out through dividends to the shareholders. So companies are generally not a great way for when you're looking at assets that are going to have large capital gains. Super is always good. Super is a great tax environment while you're in accumulation phase. So when you're working and you haven't reached retirement or when you can turn your super fund into pension phase, super funds are taxed at 15% on income or 10% on discounted capital gains when you're in that accumulation phase. And when you're in pension phase, all your earnings are tax-free. So having a asset in there from a tax point of view is great. The downside to super, as most people know, you need to be able to reach what they call preservation age or meet the conditions of release before you can actually access the money in super. It's sort of stuck in there until yeah, you meet those conditions of release, which is generally when you're sort of 65 and retired for most people. Awesome. So I think it's time to move this party to the next segment of the show, which is called the Fire Round. Welcome to the Fire Round. In this segment, we ask the same four questions to each guest, each episode. So Mish, you're up. Okay. So Scott, one of our favorite uh, questions over here. If you could only read one business book in your life, what business book would it be and why? I got to admit, I'm not a big business book reader, but Start With Why by Simon Sinek. I think it's probably a fairly popular choice, I dare say. I guess my philosophy around business is usually, you know, you can analyze the numbers to death and it can be quite boring and quite dry. It's not necessarily going to really achieve much. Business is really about relationships and trust and trying to be different. So this book is really about, I guess, having strength in in having a strong vision and strong leadership to inspire others. And I think it's something that I know, yeah, where I work here at Hoffman Kelly, it's something that's really, I guess, impressed upon our our staff as well, because we want people to really have that ownership and want to be able to think about things and come up with ideas so that we can really move forward and, and be very different to every other accounting firm out there, because there's plenty of other accounting firms out there. It's I think that sort of ethos of more about looking after your people, I guess, and not being too focused on your bottom line, because in general, people who look after their people have happy people, people who are really invested in, in your business, the numbers and, and and the money and everything else that will effectively just follow after that. So, yeah. It speaks for itself. It's a fantastic book that Simon really hit world headlines with his why, <laughs> you yeah. know, doing things for the right reason. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Awesome. I love it. So if you had $1 million deposit right now and you had to invest it tomorrow or you would lose it to the tax man, where would you invest it and why? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is the tax man's always going to find it. He's got his powers. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, look, if all things considered, I if I was going to lose it, I'd go and buy a castle over in Scotland, Western Highlands of Scotland. <laughs> I just, um, it was one of the most beautiful places in the world I visited in my travels. And I've got this picture at home with my my now wife. Uh, she was, I think we were only just going out at the time. 
standing in front of this castle on this island, um, just in the middle of a lock, and it was just the most beautiful thing that I've seen in my life, and I'd love to buy that. If I had a million dollars, I'd try and do that. <laughs> awesome. Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. So, Scott, if you lost all of your net wealth and you had to start all over again, what do you think your first move would be? Yeah, I think this is a tricky one. Do I still have my job? <laughs> well, you still you, no. you still have your intelligence, okay? Yeah, so, yeah, um, anything, yeah. Just, yeah, just what you know. All that's happened is you've lost all your wealth. What would you start doing again? Are you passionate enough to go back into uh, accounting? <laughs> yeah, oh, look, I, I think I definitely would. You know, it's part of my background is I actually did science and I did a, a PhD and I was in medical research for probably 10 or 15 years and then I shifted to accounting and and one of the questions I always get is, why did you do that? And how can you do that? Like, it's just so different. I think the problem solving and people management and just getting involved with people and their lives, I, I find extremely rewarding. So I would always go to a career where that's involved. And yeah, I would definitely go back to accounting. And yeah, whether that's hopefully the if the people sacked me, I'd probably try and beg for my job back here at Hoffman Kelly <laughs> and yeah, get that back and just start again because it's always a funny thing because of my background. If I was younger, I would have certainly tried to start my own business and do it that way. But I think sort of being a little bit older now, I, I would probably, yeah, maybe not it wouldn't scare me to start my own business, but I think I'm a very sort of simple person. I I like to just uh, do my job and I have a very simple life. I don't have a ridiculous expenditure, probably like most boring accountants out there. Yeah, I'd definitely be happy to continue on doing accounting for the rest of my life. <laughs> Fantastic. That's an awesome, awesome reply. So apart from accounting, what are some of your favorite hobbies? I do love running. I try and go running two or three times a week. I love going bushwalking. I'm, I'm not a beach person, so you'll definitely find me walking in a in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast or or down at Tambourine rather than being on the beach. And and I'll blame my dad for that. He was always a massive bushwalker, and used to play a lot of hockey. I haven't done so for the last few years, but yeah, always enjoy playing hockey as well. Fantastic. So, mate, last question. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and your business? Yeah, if they want to find out about me, all they need to go is to hoffmankelly.com.au. And, yeah, we're a chartered accounting firm in Stones Corner. Just It's about a K from Brisbane CBD. And, yeah, it's a, a great firm. There's six directors. We've got a staff of about 50 people. We've been doing property and property-related work ever since, or yeah, I think Tony Hoffman just loved property so much. So yeah, we've got a big background around property and property-related items. So yeah, the best way is just to go to hoffmankelly.com.au. You can search for Scott Ward on there and feel free to give me a call. I'm always happy to have a chat and we always offer, um, yeah, no obligation, no fee chat for up to an hour for any potential new clients. We like to make sure that what we can offer is going to be valid for them and vice versa as well. So good and stuff. I'll, I'll second that. Uh, thank you, Scott, that uh, you've been a wealth of knowledge, particularly in the space that we're playing in. So really grateful for um, how you've been helping us out and how you've been helping our clients out. Yeah, no problems at all. It, as I said, it's it's great to meet new people. And yeah, I never seem to get sick of yeah talking to new people and, and helping them solve their problems. All right. Today's guest has been Scott Ward. Cheers, mate. No worries. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Mish. Thanks, Scott. See ya.
All right, this has been Mish Daniel and Andrew Bean on the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Where wealth revolves around you. Thanks for listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Don't forget to check out their private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network.